So turn to Romans 16 one more time. We were there last week in, on uh, Mother's Day. Was that last week? I can't remember from week to week anymore. It was last week, wasn't it? Uh, we were there here. We were here, uh, Romans 16, and we looked at verse 13. Let's look there again. And I want to say a few more things about Romans chapter 16, this passage of Scripture, and trust that it will be a timely word to your heart from the Lord. I trust this is the mind of the Spirit for us this morning, and so I would say to you, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Romans 16, 13 says, salute or greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, and mine. And we said that the idea was greet Rufus and his mama, who has been like a mama to me. And we tried to bring some encouraging thoughts last week to you regarding motherhood. And so I want to say many more things here that I didn't get to last week. There is a question among uh, Bible teachers and commentators who this uh, man Rufus uh, was. There's a Rufus mentioned in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. It says that Jesus is going out to the cross, to the, the skull hill to Golgotha, and he's carrying the cross beam of his cross, and he has been whipped and beaten and greatly weakened. And he falls under the weight of that probably a hundred pound cross beam. And it says they laid hold of a man that was passing by, a man named Simon of Cyrene, who was the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's Mark 15, 21. And so there has been some speculation and quite a bit of agreement, actually, that this man Rufus in Romans 16 here was probably the same man that's mentioned in Mark 15, 21. So Rufus's daddy carried Jesus' cross, and Rufus's mama ministered to the Apostle Paul. Now, if that's true, what a family that was, would you say? Wow. Oh, oh, that we could leave our children, our grandchildren, that kind of heritage. So Simon of Cyrene was kind of thrust into the action. They kind of, Roman soldiers forced him and made him pick up that cross beam of Jesus and either walk with him or carry it for him to Golgotha where he put it down and then stepped aside and Jesus took the cross and was lifted up to die. And Mark, writing to the Romans, Mark was primarily looking to reach a Gentile, a non-Jewish audience, the Romans most likely. We know this because in Mark's gospel he uses many Latin terms, many non-Jewish terms. He explains the custom of the Jews, and you wouldn't have to explain the custom of the Jews to a Jew. They would know. So he's explaining it to these people who don't know the customs of the Jews, namely Gentiles. So Mark was probably written to the Romans, and Mark was with Peter at the end of Peter's life. We know from 1 Peter 5, and he was with Paul at the end of Paul's life. We know it from 2 Timothy 4, Mark was a faithful man, though he had at one time failed greatly. 
and he had deserted the missionary team. And so, but he's back in circulation. He's back in service. You know, there's great hope for failures. We, we talked about, oh, that we could be a Simon of Cyrene and carry the cross of Jesus or the mother of Rufus that could minister the apostle Paul, but maybe we hadn't been any of those things. But it's not too late. There's grace for you today to start today right where you are right now. Your years up till now may not have been a stellar Christian ministry or service for Jesus. But beloved, through the power of God's Holy Spirit and through the grace of God that is abundant to you and I who are by all rights miserable failures, we can begin a new thing. We can pick up our Bibles and truly dig in. We can set our sights on better things than just eating, drinking, money, and sex and pleasures of this life. We can set our sights on bigger and better things than temporal things and passing things and physical things and so forth. So what a home that was. If this was the same Rufus, uh, Simon of Cyrene's boy, and his unnamed mother was a great blessing to the Apostle Paul. So whether that's true or not, we won't speculate any further. The book of Romans tells us the answer to the most important question ever asked. What is the most important question in this world? It is this. How can a man be right with God? How can a person be in a right relationship with their maker? And the book of Romans lays this out in great detail. None of us are in a right relationship. We have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. The first three chapters of Romans, he says, we're all condemned. You may be a moral person. You may even be a religious person, but you're a lost person. You're condemned, you're ruined, and you're on the road to hell apart from the righteousness of Jesus given to those that believe. How can a man be right with God? By faith in Christ alone. Jesus was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. And when we believe on him, God takes his goodness and puts it on our account so that we now stand by faith in a right relationship with God. We are justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this church that Paul writes to, and he does it for them and he does it for all churches, It's one of those church epistles. It's one of those things that the church must know. How can a man be right with God? Well, the book of Romans answers the question. Are you right with God today, sir, ma'am? Sonny, boy, girly, girly girl, little ones, are you? Are you a Christian? Do you know Christ? Are you in a right standing before your maker? If your heart stopped at this moment, if you get in a car wreck on the way home, will you go to be with the Lord? Just that quick, or will you lift up your eyes in hell, having squandered your life, and now the door has been closed, and you cannot be right with God ever now, for you squandered away the day of grace. So I would say to all of you today, examine yourselves and run to Jesus while you may. Run to him. Run in faith to him. He's not far. He's not hard to find. He's right at the end of a repentant, believing prayer. Call on him and he'll answer you. 
He's there. This is the day of salvation. Call upon him while he may be found. Seek him while he's near. And so the book of Romans answers this all-important question. And so then Paul gets to the end of it, having written about not only justification, but sanctification, how that God takes those who believe, and he begins to change them and make them more like his son. And he gets to the end of this book, and he says, Now I want you to send my warm affection, my warm greetings to these people. And he names 27 different ones by name. And he mentions two more without naming them. He refers in verse 15 to Nereus' sister. And he refers in verse 13 to Rufus' mother. So these two unnamed individuals make 29 individuals that Paul sends greetings to. And when he says, greet them, salute them, he doesn't just mean tell them hey for me. He means I give them my warmest wishes, well wishes, I send them my love and I wish them well as my dear brother and sister. So what he's saying is this gospel that makes us right with God also makes us love one another. Amen? Do I need to repeat that? Let me, let me try that again. Okay, you ready? Get ready with your amen or get ready with the, oh Lord, help me, whichever is appropriate. The gospel that makes us right with God, also causes us to love one another. Amen. Amen. And here we see a loving Christian community. Paul writing to some that he's never met and only heard of. And yet there's a warmness in his heart for them. There's a a bond. There's a tie there. There's, There's a connection. And I've found that to be true among believers. I have been places where I couldn't even speak the same language as this one that was maybe at this conference or wherever we had met, and yet there was a connection there. There was something there that was inexplicable, a Christian tie, a Christian bond with this brother or sister that was from some faraway place and didn't even speak the language that I know. They knew several, perhaps, and I didn't know but one barely, and yet there was something there. Our hearts were, were united in Christ. It was the work of the Spirit. And there is a fact that the new birth causes people to love one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one to another. This world is angry and hateful. People are vindictive and full of spite and just looking for an opportunity to get even, to get one up. And it's a, people are just at each other nonstop on every level of society. And there's a better way, beloved. It's the way of the Spirit of God. It's the way of the gospel of grace where the fruit of the Spirit makes people gentle and kind, full of peace and full of joy. Where we follow in the footsteps of Jesus when they cursed him and mocked him and hated him and eventually killed him. His cry was, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he begins to teach us something of his mercy and his kindness. We who have received such mercy ought to be a merciful people to others. We who have been forgiven so much ought to be quick to forgive others. And so here's Paul writing to a people, uh, names, specific names. He comes from these great high 
amazing theological truths of justification and sanctification and glorification and election in the book of Romans. And he comes right down there and he says, now before I go, give my warmest regards and the full expression of my heart, give to this one and that one and this one. And so deep theology will, will cause us to be a loving people if we really understand this deep theology. The beauty of the church is what I want to talk to you about today. The beauty of the church. And when I talk about the beauty of the church, I'm not talking about the building or the grounds, although the building is important and the grounds are important. That's what I guess the first thing people see when they come by. They see the grounds and they see the building. But I hope then when they come in, they see something even more beautiful. I hope they see and experience and maybe they can't even explain it or feel it even as we can't fully explain it or, or verbalize exactly what it is. But it is a, a depth and a reality. There is something among the saints of God. There's something that is sweeter than this, this world can give us of its pleasures and of its trinkets and of its gadgets. There's something better. There's something sweeter. The beauty of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is its beauty. He is the foundation stone. He is putting together living stones and joining us together with other stones. And he is that cornerstone and the foundation stone. He's building him a temple, a temple of people where he lives in his people. 1 Peter chapter 2. The beauty of the church is Jesus. He is our joy. He is our Assurance, he is our confidence, he is our hope, he is our strength. His spirit holds us fast. His word guides our steps and teaches our minds how to think. And we get to walk together toward the celestial city as brothers and sisters side by side. There's something beautiful about that. And here is... Another aspect of the beauty of the church, there are in this list of 29 people, now I'm not counting those names right at the end of the chapter, verses 21 through 23 is Paul's missionary team saying, now Timothy's with me and Lucius and Jason and so forth and so on, they, they send their greetings as well. I'm talking about in verses 1 through 16 where he mentions some 29 individuals and then the missionary team gives their greetings at the at the end. In these names, there are Hebrew names, there are Greek names, there are Latin names, and there's some birth order names. One guy down at the end there, in verse 22, in the missionary team, he says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you. So Paul's secretary. Paul's stenographer, his scribe, his amanuensis, the one who took Paul's dictation, he's dictating the letter as Paul tells him what to write. He says, I'm Tertius, which means the third. That was a very imaginative name Mama came up with, wasn't it? Third. He's the third one. We'll call him third. That's what Tertius means. And then verse 23 
Gaius, mine host, and the whole church saluteth you. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluteth you. And Cordus, a brother. Cordus means fourth. <laughs> but he was a brother. He was the fourth born, but he was a brother. What do we know about him? Not much, except he was number four. And by then, Mama said, come here, fourth. I can't even think of a name for you right now, so I'm going to call you fourth. Uh, a birth order name, which probably indicated that Tertius and Quartus were men of low standing or no standing at all. They weren't big shots. They weren't celebrities. They went by a birth order name. And you've got there in verse 23, you've got Erastus, the city treasurer, the chamberlain, side by side with fourth. Erastus and Cordus, they both send their greetings. One's not more important than the other. These are brothers in Christ. So you've got somebodies and nobodies, big shots and little shots, upper crust and little crumbs. In these names, in these lists that make up the church at Rome, some 29 people that Paul greets by name, Hebrew names, Greek names, Latin names, birth order names, you've got Jews and Gentiles. Now, we know this, but don't hurry in your thoughts just yet. It was a big deal when Jew and Gentile came together. This was an ethnic divide that nothing could bring together. Jews looked down on Gentile dogs. They were outsiders. They were outside the covenant. They were pagan, idolatrous, wicked Gentiles, said the Jew who had the true revelation of the true God through Abraham and Isaac and so forth. So the Jews looked down on the Gentiles. And of course, how do you think the Gentiles looked back? It wasn't a warm love between you and John. It was a, it was a divide that none could, could span. And then you had the Samaritans. They were half Jew and half Gentile, and they were hated by both groups as well. They were considered to be sellouts by the Jews, and they were considered to be idolatrous. And the Jews wouldn't even travel through Samaria. They would go many, many miles and many, many hours just to avoid walking on Samaritan dirt. And we read in John chapter 4, and Jesus said, I have to go to Samaria because there's a woman at a well. And I'm going to go meet with her. She's going to become my missionary. She's going to tell all the Samaritans what I've revealed to her. And she's going to become my representative in Samaria. Jesus wasn't bound by that foolish hatred that Jew had for Gentile. Gentile for Jew. And Jew against Samaritan. And Samaritan against Jew and Gentile. Jesus loved the Jew and he loved the Gentile and he loved the Samaritan. And I love him because he first loved me. What a Lord is our Lord. So you've got Jew and Gentile in this list. You've got men and women. Don't hurry past that. In fact, the first one he mentions in this chapter is Phoebe. Our sister, a servant of the church who has helped many, verse 1 and 2. 
And then he mentions Priscilla and Aquila, this husband and wife team who had a church in their house and who laid their very necks out for the Apostle Paul. I don't know what they did, but they literally gave their own life if it had been necessary for the Apostle Paul and for the spread of the gospel. You've got men and women, Jew and Gentile. You've got prisoners and free men. You've got, even in the early church, slaves and masters. And the gospel began to undermine and undercut that whole setup until eventually we could see the beauty of that work itself out in all men being made in the image and likeness of God. But the gospel was the first strike against that awful system of master and slave. But yet in the early church, masters and slaves met together around the Lord's table and worshiped together. There was a unity that couldn't be explained. How can Jew and Gentile come together? How can men and women and master and slave and, and prominent citizens like the city treasurer and nobodies? Look at verse 10. Salute Apelles, approved in Christ. There is not one more thing known about this man named Apelles. Who is he? What did he do? No clue. We don't know a thing about him except we know this. He was approved in Christ. Christ was pleased with this man named Apelles. That's all we know. And I'd like to be known for nothing more than that as well, would you not? Wouldn't that be wonderful if the only thing about us was Christ was pleased with us and everything else we didn't break our neck to try to achieve. We just sought to please him. He was unnoticed and unpopular and unseen and and unknown except this one fact about him. He was approved in Christ. Who was he? He was a nobody apparently. He was a nobody. So you take this picture of this list of names and you see that the church's base was very broad. The church was not monolithic. It was mosaic. It wasn't a one kind of people. It was many kinds of people brought together by the grace of God to make a beautiful thing. It wasn't homogenous, which means of one kind. The church was not of one kind. It was of many kinds that all came together around the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and raised, ascended, mediating, and soon to come. He is our unity. He is our unity. What can bring unity in this divided world? How can hateful people be made loving people? How can vengeful and Malicious and people full of enmity toward everybody. How can that be overcome so that they can be changed into a new man or new woman where there is now a supernatural touch upon their heart so that they now are literally a new man, a new woman? That's the power of the gospel that does that. It is Jesus, the living Lord, who by his spirit brings us alive. Gives us new eyes to see and a new mind to think and a new heart affection. And we love because he first loved us. And if we say we love God and hate our brother, we're a liar. 
For if we don't love our brother whom we have seen, how can we love him whom we've not seen? It says 1 John chapter 4. And so, <clears throat> the church is a miracle of God's grace. It's a miracle of God's grace. Even in this small congregation, people from different backgrounds, different parts of the country, different educational levels, different economic classes perhaps. Some grew up on a farm, some grew up in the city. One preacher said, I want to have in my, if I could pick, he said, I'd want to have in our congregation men that were businessmen, they had their suits on, and farmers that came in with their overalls on, and mechanics with grease under their fingernails. I want to, to see not people that's like me, I want to see a mosaic of all the backgrounds that Jesus reaches down and picks up that one and that one and that one and makes a beautiful patchwork out of a motley crew like me and you. The, we have unity in Jesus, but it's not a uniformity. We're all not just alike, but we're all one in Christ. We're different, not all the same. We're a composite. We're not a homogenous group, all of the same kind. I, I, I often hear about uh, churches that call themselves cowboy churches or biker churches or deer hunter churches. Or, and I don't want to besmirch the motive of any of those people if they're trying to reach Cowboys and bikers and hunters and fishermen and whatever, race car drivers and whatever. But that seems to be too narrow of a niche. It seems to be too narrow of a focus. So I guess if you don't drive a motorcycle, could you not go to the biker church? Would it be okay if you drive a car and show up? Or will you be considered a, an outsider? Or if you don't like horses, could you go to a cowboy church? If you had on... Uh, Something besides cowboy boots and snap shirts? Or would you be welcome? We don't want to just find people that we like that's just like us. Because it apparently brings much glory to God to bring together people that are very different, and yet he overcomes all those differences. He breaks down those walls, as Ephesians 2 says. Between even Jew and Gentile, he takes that middle wall of partition that keeps us apart and hating each other, and he breaks it down, and he brings us together. And I call you my brother, and I call you my sister. And in spite of all of our differences, we have a union that will outlast this world because of Jesus. So my mind goes to Revelation chapter 5, where that we get a little glimpse into heaven. And John says, I beheld around the throne every tongue, every tribe, every kindred, every nation saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain. You've redeemed us by your blood. And so when we get to that meeting, when we get there, we're going to see some people very, very different than us. 
out of every kindred, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity, that he reached down in and brought to himself a beautiful mosaic of grace. He, he found a bunch of nobodies and made them his. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says. He chose the foolish of this world. He chose the weak of this world. He chose the base and the despised and the nobodies of this world. And he made them his so that nobody could boast about what they have done and that all glory would go to Christ. Read 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. I just summarized it in very short paraphrase. He chose the nobodies and he made them his body. In fact, I'm going to put that on the sign, I think, this week. That's a good sign message. Nobodies made his body. And I'm going to put out 1 Corinthians 1 beside nobodies. And I'm going to put Ephesians 2 or 1 Corinthians 12, 13 or one of those verses that say that we are now his body. From a nobody to his body. And it pleased him to do it like this. To take Hebrews and Greeks and Romans and prominent officials and third and fourth borns and unnamed kinsmen and mother and sister. We don't even know their names. We don't know what they did. They weren't famous they weren't accomplished. They were just his. And because they're his, they're mine. Right? If they're his, they're ours. If they belong to him, they belong to me. They're my brother and sister. We are of the same womb. We're of the same womb. The, the birth of the Spirit, the power of the gospel. Headed to the same place. Going to worship the same lamb. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be partitions Baptist over here, Methodist over here, Presbyterians over here, Episcopalians, you, you're over there. There will be no partitions. There will be no walls. Those denominational labels will either blow off on the way up or they're going to burn off on the way down. There'll be a lot of Baptists in hell and a lot of Baptists in heaven, but when they get to heaven, they won't glory in Baptist anymore. They'll glory in Christ. Won't glory in my domination and my morality and what I did and my service for Christ. Uh, the great Puritan Thomas Hooker, the preacher, was about to die. I shared this a few weeks ago, and, and somebody said, Brother Thomas, you're about to go receive your rewards. And he said, I'm about to go receive mercy. He was a faithful preacher, but he said, I will only receive what I don't deserve when I go there. It won't be that I will be a great preacher reward. It'll be I'm a great beggar getting mercy from a kind God. It pleases the Lord to take people like this, make them His, bring them together, put in them a supernatural love, join their arms as fellow laborers, pool their energy. Not all were apostles. Paul the apostle wrote them, but they, though not apostles, they helped an apostle. Not all can be apostles, but all can help. All can serve. And then as he gets to the end, he says, he can't, he, he seemingly can't quit. He can't close without giving a final warning. He says, I want you to mark, verse 17, them, mark them which cause divisions. 
and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Mark them and avoid them. Those who teach false doctrine, those who teach against gospel doctrine, those who teach against what I have taught you in these previous chapters. They do not serve Jesus our Lord. In fact, he uses the full title in verse 18. They serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but they serve their own belly, their own appetites. They are in it for themselves. They they teach, preach, minister, write, travel out of self-interest and self-gratification. They live in extravagance. They're false teachers living off the flock, not feeding the flock. They use good words. They use fair speeches to deceive the hearts of the gullible, the naive, the unsuspecting. So Paul gives the warning against those that would come into this loving, warm fellowship that are in right relationship with God and now love one another. Paul says, stay on your guard for those that will seek to divide and harm you. Mark them and avoid them. And Verse 20, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And he doesn't just say that one time. Verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And there we have the ending of the book of Romans. The beauty of the church, a righteous church because of Jesus, a loving church because of Jesus, a diverse church because of Jesus, a mosaic of grace because of Jesus, a composite because of Jesus, different yet united in Jesus, not uniform but unified. Not all just alike, but very different, but devoted to the same Lord. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in you all, says the apostle. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Father, thank you for this portion of your word that is very instructive. Though many hard-to-pronounce names are listed, and we would certainly not call it exciting reading, but it is instructive. And there is much benefit and profit for us to meditate over these things today. We see a, a need, oh Lord, for you to continue to teach us true humility, to know that in your kingdom, the greatest are those who serve. In this world, the greatest are at the top and others serve them, but in your kingdom, the greatest are at the bottom and serve others. And we remember your example, Lord Jesus, who though you were the highest of all, you became the lowest and the servant, and you've called us to this same mindset. May we look with eyes of Tender compassion upon our fellow believers. 
May you guard us from this hateful tone, mood, stance that is so prevalent today, this sharpness, this attack mode that everybody is in. May somehow the beauty of the Lord be upon his church. And we don't have to understand it, O oh Lord, but if you would somehow cause us and use us to, to serve, to love, to minister to, to, to speak timely, spirit-led words, to listen with caring hearts and ears, to be unlocked this world, not like the world so we can reach it, but very unlike it so we would stand out in sharp contrast and in beautiful relief against the darkness. And oh Lord, it'll have to be you that helps us do it for we will blow it surely. We will miserably fail unless every day we begin in prayer and we dive into the word and we let the word wash over our minds and transform our minds and walk in the spirit moment by moment and guard against pride and and arrogance and stubbornness and laziness and lust and whatever the sin may be that's so near to us and easily pounces upon us, O oh Lord. Make us strong. Guard us so that we would be a righteous church with a loving expression of the gospel in the way we live and treat and act and move among one another. We need not be men and women with egos Oh, that we could be an appellees approved in Christ. An unknown, but, but pleasing to you. Grant it, oh Lord. For your glory, we pray. And oh Lord, I pray for that one right now that is in their heart. Thinking and looking and wondering and questioning. Bring them in. Bring them to yourself. Save their dear precious soul before it's too late. Make them alive who came in as a dead man. Make them alive as they leave. A living woman who came in a dead woman. That young person that grows up in a Christian home, I pray, O oh Lord, they will not think that salvation comes through their mama or daddy. That they will know the power of the Holy Spirit as they look to the Lord Jesus Christ crucified and raised to save the worst of sinners. I pray they will believe even this day and they will make that clear and they will follow you all their life. We thank you for this church and for these precious moments we've had together. We pray all this in the dear name of our all, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.